My name is, my name's Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the, I'm the youth pastor here. I get to hang out with the middle school and high school students. It's awesome. Keeps me young. Any, any middle schoolers in the room right now? Any high schoolers? So if you, Mr. Graham Cook right there, that's my boy. That's my boy right in the, right in the front row. That's awesome. That's awesome. Man, what a, what a gift it is to be able to serve at this church and serve with you and these families. Like, man, it's such an amazing privilege and an honor. And I'm always always just incredibly honored when I get to be here and get to share with you guys. And uh, man, I hope that you're ready to hear and ready to receive today, that there's a word that God has for us. He had for me this week when I was preparing this. And so if we're ready to lean in, if we're good, fam, are we good? Then God's going to show up and he's going to do some awesome stuff in our hearts and, and in our lives. But uh, I want to I talk about family reunions for just a minute here today. All right. Anybody ever been to a family reunion? You guys have had those? They're a good time, aren't they? You know, family reunions, we get to, you know, spend some extra time with the, you know, most cherished relationships in our lives, you know, the ones we want to nurture and, and pour into. And like, there's, there's, just, there's just a lot of awesome things that happen at a family reunion. You know, it's like the perfect scenario for, for joy and for happiness. There's a, it's the perfect recipe, right? You get a, a tablespoon of laughter. There's always a lot of laughter when you get around your family and extended family you haven't seen in a while. There's a gallon of love, I hope. I hope you get a lot of love in your family. I hope that's the, the drive driving force behind it. Maybe just a little pinch of awkwardness, you know, like a few awkward moments always when we get our extended families together. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's always just a little dash of drama. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just a little, little something every year. Like we've all got that crazy uncle, right? We've all got a crazy, where are my crazy uncles at? And even want to admit it in the room right now. In my family, I've only got one brother. So by default, I am the crazy uncle. So I sympathize with you, you know? But there's always a little bit, a little bit of drama, things that sort of take place. Like maybe someone brings their new girlfriend home for the first time. That's always a little interesting, you know? Maybe the bratty nieces and nephews, not your kids, the other ones. Like they break grandma's dynasty that dated back to the, grandma's vase that dated back to the Ming dynasty. I totally messed that joke up. All right. And... Uh, <laughs> And then, you know, maybe Cousin Eddie hits the eggnog a little too hard and too fast or something. I don't know, like, what it is. But, like, there's always, there's always those moments at the family reunions where it's like, all right, this is, this is a little dicey. This is a little interesting. And our families are, they're, they're very interesting, right? And it takes all kinds of people that make the world go around. But here's what I know is true today, all right? If you're watching online, if you're here in the room right now, I know this is true about every single one of us is that we all have families, okay? And the second thing I know is true is that they're all full of crazy people, right? <laughs> all of them. And there's, there's like... Most of you are like, yes, absolutely, amen, preach it, brother. And then there's a few of you that are like, well, we don't have any crazy people in my family. <laughs> Come on now, all right? Let, let, me, let me get a little pro tip in life. Like, if, if you can't figure out immediately who the crazy person is in your family, it might be you. <laughs> Just saying, like, notice how all the people that you love are avoiding eye contact right now. But no, listen, listen, none of us are perfect. And we've all got some, some messed up families and they're a little nutty, but they're fun and they're so life-giving. And you know, the family that, that we're looking at here, if you've been tracking with us in this Genesis series, this is, this is the end of the Genesis series today, by the way. We've been in Genesis for a while and we get to put a cap on it today, but we've been tracking with the life of, of Joseph. And we know if you've been here at all for any of the weeks of Joseph's story, that his family was jacked up, all right? Like we might have a dash of drama at our family reunions. These guys have a dump truck load. Like things are not good in this family's household. Joseph was his father's favorite, you know, so that made things awkward between him and his 10 brothers, made it so awkward that they decided to throw him into a pit and then to sell him into slavery. And they took his nice jacket and they ripped it up and told her father that he was dead. And then they thought they were never going to see him again. Like this is a messed up family situation. Okay. 
And then we're going to find in our story today in Genesis chapter 42, where we pick it up, is that there's about to be the world's most awkward family reunion that's about to take place. Now, we feel like we've got awkward family reunions sometimes, but this one's going to be real, real interesting and really awkward, okay? And it's actually been 22 years, we're picking up our story today, 22 years since Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery to when they're about to be reunited here in this moment. Isn't that crazy? 22 years. Wrap your minds around that. Like, the, here's, a, here's another pro tip for you, all right? The, the, a great metric for how family reunions are going to go. The more time that passes between family reunions, the more awkward they're going to be. You know what I mean? Is that true? Like, one, one year goes by, and you're like, okay, you know, not that much has changed. Or there's, the kids still look mostly the same. There hasn't been any two, two big major career shifts in our life. Like, we, we still know each other pretty well. A couple years goes by, and it's like, all right, you know, there's, there's been some things changed, but, you know, we'll, we'll catch up. We'll catch up. Five years is like, man, you're, you're basically a stranger to me. Like, so much has happened in your life at this point. Like, where do we even start? In 10 years, it's like, you're effectively dead to me, you know? And I'm, I'm kidding, but you know what I mean. Like the longer, the more time that goes, like 10 years is a long time. 22 years has gone by where these guys haven't seen each other. They think he's dead and they're about to be reunited in this moment. They're reunited, not by choice, but by they're forced into it because of this famine. If you heard last, last week, Pastor Adam did an amazing job you know, talking to us about the famine and how we can survive in famine in our lives. But this famine was raging in Egypt and Joseph was the guy who was in charge of, he was in the famine management department, okay? Pharaoh basically said, man, you're a smart dude. You interpreted all these dreams. You predicted this. So I'm gonna put you in charge. You're in loss mitigation. Keep as many people as possible from dying is what I want you to do. And, you know, distribute all this food to all the people in the nation that we've got, that we're overseeing here. And so in Canaan, you know, just back where Joseph's brothers and his father were still living, where he originally came from, the famine was there too. And his family was starving and his family was hungry. And so they decide they need to go to Egypt and get some grain from this really smart guy they've heard about that stored it all up having no idea that it's their brother, okay? So drama, 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 here we go. Chapter 42, verse one, here's what happens, okay? It says that when Jacob heard, that Jacob is Joseph's father, remember, when Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, I love this, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive, otherwise we're gonna die. Okay, like I told you, this is a jacked up family. Jacob needed to attend some parenting seminars or something. I, like he was so mean to his kids. You know, like, why are you standing around looking at each other? I'm hungry and there's food over there, so go get it. Like I, I picture him like walking over and throwing open the door to the hut, you know, and he stands there like this and like all 10 like sons sort of like file out by him and he kicks the last one in the butt on the way out, slams the door, go get some food in Egypt, otherwise we're gonna die. So they go and they do what their father says. Verse three says, Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain but Joseph, this is important, catch this, this is going to be important later. Joseph wouldn't, or Jacob, sorry, wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them for some fear that harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. And since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. So just try, like, just try to wrap your mind around what this would have been like for Joseph. You know, to walk into this room. Like for him, when he woke up, it was probably just 
another day, business as usual, you know, all right, another day, got to save some lives. Here we go, all sorts of hungry people to feed. He sort of like walks out of his, his bedroom and his assistant hands him his iPad for the day, you know, so he's like going, they're like chirping in his ear and he's got his spreadsheets and he's looking through, yeah, okay, yeah, family, Canaan, 10 people, starving. Okay, yep, yeah, check, here we go. And he walks into the room, ready to go and just do his normal thing. And then he gets in there and he looks up and he sees these are his 10 brothers that sold him into slavery basically signed his death warrant. And now here they are, and they're bowing in front of him, begging him for food. And this is a crazy moment because it really is full circle for Joseph because, you know, back before his brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph was having these dreams as he was growing up that one day his brothers would bow down to him and would serve him. Joseph didn't have the intelligence not to tell his brothers that, and that's kind of why they sold him into slavery. But he had these dreams And now, here we are 22 years down the road. There's been a lot of twists and turns in the road, but God has kept his promises. Like God promised this and gave this to Joseph in dreams and visions. And now 22 years later, after he's basically been through hell, now it's all happening. It's all taking place. God keeps his promises, church. That's not my message today. That's just a little freebie for you, all right? 100% of the time when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And so Joseph is standing here and all this is being fulfilled right now in this moment. He's trying to wrap his head around what this even could look like or what it could be and how he's supposed to react and how he's supposed to respond and does he say anything to them. And check out, check out what happens next in verse 7. It says, as soon, Joseph saw, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. All right, so he's going the incognito route. He said, where do you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. He would have been in Egyptian clothes, speaking in an Egyptian through an interpreter. They haven't seen him in 22 years. They thought he was dead. They don't have any idea that it's him. And he remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you are spies and you've come to see whether our land is unprotected. He knew they weren't spies, but Joseph's a good guy. Probably one of the most exemplary biblical characters in the Bible and heroes of our faith. But even he couldn't resist the urge to mess with them just a little bit. All right. They kind of deserved it. So it says, you're spies and you're coming to see whether our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. Like we're the sons of one man. We're honest men, not spies. I love verse 12. Nope, you're spies. Like you've come to see whether our land is unprotected. Joseph messes with them a little bit. And essentially what he winds up doing is he he throws them into jail for for three days. And says, you know, you guys are going to be in jail for three days. And just just so we can figure out whether you're spies or not and try to get to the bottom of all this. And like throughout the course of this dialogue that starts to happen and like, this, this is five chapters long, this back and forth that happens between Joseph and his brothers. I don't have time to read it all here today, but you should read it for yourself for sure because it's, it's good reading. It's kind of funny. But there's this, di- this dialogue that happens, and throughout that, Joseph discovers that, that his brothers have left behind, remember this younger brother, Benjamin, that their father wouldn't let go with them. So now Joseph's interest is piqued immediately in this moment because he's like, all right, there's, a, there's another younger brother. When Joseph left, when he was sold into slavery, he was the youngest brother. He was a little guy. He was his father's favorite. And now he hears, okay, there's another guy, Benjamin, that's been born since I've been gone in the last 22 years. And now it seems like he's moved into kind of my position. It seems like now he's probably dad's favorite. If dad wouldn't let him leave and wouldn't let him come here because he was afraid of what would happen to him, then he's probably taken my place as the favorite. Joseph was smart. He knew he was the favorite, right? And so now he sort of gets wind that there's this other brother. And so he figures out, all right, I've got to get away to get Benjamin from Canaan to Egypt so I can meet him, so I can see him with my own eyes, so I can sort of figure out what's going on here. I think Joseph probably knew and remembered very well the way his older brothers treated him when he was the youngest and he was the favorite. 
And so he's thinking now, are they doing the same things to Benjamin that they did to me my entire life? He wants to figure out, sort of do a little bit of incognito investigation to figure out if his brothers have changed or if they're the same people that they were 22 years ago. So in verse 17, it says, Joseph puts them all in prison for three days. And on the third day, Joseph says to them, listen, I'm a God-fearing man. And if you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain here in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. This will do two things. It'll prove, one, that you're telling the truth. And two, you won't die. I won't kill you. He's not, he's not completely removing a torturous death from the table here, okay? That's still an option. It's still there. But he says, listen, if you do this, then I'll believe that you're telling the truth and I won't kill you. So surprisingly, not surprisingly rather, to this, it says that they agreed in verse 20. And for the next five chapters here, there's this back and forth that sort of happens with Joseph and his brothers and he puts them through these tests and they bring the younger brother back and all of this. And, and Joseph is just sort of, he's faced with this decision over and over again. How's he, like he has... He can do anything he wants to these guys. And he's sort of faced with it in that moment. Like the, the, it's funny and it's humorous, but then at the same time, you've got to believe that when Joseph saw his brothers in the room that day, that it would have been such a, like a, a painful experience for him. Can you imagine the memories that would have just began to resurface? The last time that he saw their faces would have been when he was being drugged away by the slave traders and saw his brother standing there laughing or doing whatever they were doing, you know? Like, he was betrayed by the people in his life that were closest to him. He was betrayed by the people that he should have been able to trust with his life. And now here they are sitting in front of him. Like, you, you see there's a, there's a huge shift in the power dynamic here, right? Joseph, for his entire life, was powerless to stop his brothers from abusing him and from doing what they did to him. And now the entire thing is shifted where they're sitting in front of him, bowing in front of him, completely powerless. And he can exact whatever kind of revenge he can dream up. And no one's going to stop him. No one's going to say, you can't do that. He has all the power in this situation. And now he's left with this decision and this choice. What do I do with it? He holds their lives in his hands. You know what? I can't imagine what I would do in that kind of a situation. Like if I had that level of responsibility, like if all that had been done to me and I carried around those kind of wounds and then I had that opportunity, like what would my response to these brothers be that had hurt me so deeply? Because sometimes in our lives, we do this super often as humans is that we're hurt in our past and we go through something difficult, somebody hurts us, maybe we make a mistake and then we're paying for it and then we, we carry around those wounds and those scars, don't we? And then we, we carry them around so much to the extent that sometimes like, we, we allow those wounds just to never fully heal. And then we allow those wounds to just begin to define who we are. It begins to become such a part of us and we become comfortable with it and we become comfortable with the pain. And we just begin to allow that to inform the way that we make decisions and the way that we interact with other people. Like it's an all-encompassing thing sometimes. It feels good to hold a grudge, doesn't it? When someone hurts you, like, let's be honest, I often say holding a grudge is one of life's guilty pleasures. Something about it that just feel, if we're just being real and honest in church, okay, I think we can do that. Like, it feels good sometimes, doesn't it, to hold a grudge because it feels like almost powerful. Like we're holding that over someone's head as a way to kind of make them pay for what they did. And us holding the grudge feels like we're sort of getting back at them. But what it's actually doing is it's hand, effectively handcuffing us to our past, Right, like the thing that's behind us, the thing that's been done to us or the mistake that we've made, that we, we've handcuffed ourselves to it and we can never really completely move forward the way that God is calling us to. 
put it a different way, I mean, like, if I took Rebecca's piano back there, okay, see that thing, and like, I could, I could somehow strap that to my back. Let's just pretend I was strong enough to strap it to my back and pick it up, okay? I can't, but if I could, like, imagine how ridiculous that would look. I've got this giant piano on my back, and then I just started trying to kind of walk around and do life like that was normal, you know? Wouldn't that be crazy? Like, for, I wouldn't even be able to walk at first, but like, if I, if I was strong enough, I could probably, you know, find ways to begin to step and begin to take movement, and like I could try to live my life and pretend like everything's okay and sort of like fake it until I make it kind of thing, but I've got this giant piano on my back the entire time. And that's kind of what holding a grudge does. It handcuffs us to our past. We're trying to walk with this massive piano on our back, but, it, but it's stifling, right? It, put, it, put, it puts a cap on our capacity. Like we feel like, okay, like I can carry this thing around. I can carry this wound from my past. I can carry this grudge and I can still manage. I can still do life. I can still minister. I can still serve. I can still be a good person. I can still, I can get by. And we feel like we're doing okay, but we don't even realize the longer we carry that piano, we don't realize how much it's limiting our capacity. And for Joseph in this moment, like he had to make a choice. Does he drop the piano or does he live in the pain of his past? Does he handcuff himself to what's been done to him? Does he handcuff himself to the pain that his brothers cost him? Does he continue to allow it to weigh him down or does he set himself free from it? And then for these next few chapters, it seems like, you know, when I first read this, it seemed like as Joseph was going back and forth and he's kind of messing with his brothers, like it seemed like he was just sort of like, you know, that, that was his way of getting back at them, was sort of messing with them. But the more I read it, I don't think that Joseph was motivated by revenge in any of this at all. I think he was actually motivated by redemption. Like, I think he wanted to give his brothers an opportunity to do the right thing. I think he wanted to hope and wanted to believe that his brothers had actually turned a corner, that they had changed, that they had grown, that they had evolved, they matured, like that they were different and better men than they were 22 years ago when they sold them into slavery. So he begins to like put them basically through these different tests and these different, these different metrics. And I think that Joseph's brothers you know, they began to realize something like in this moment that, you know, we can't change our past, but maybe we can build on it, right? Like we all know we, we can't change. There is no copy or edit or pace for what's happened to us in our past. We can't change it. We messed up. We can't change it. Someone hurt us. We can't change it. It's in the past. There's nothing we can do about it. We can handcuff ourselves to it. We can carry the piano around on our back, but we can't change it. But what we can do is learn from it, right? That's not new information. You know that. Like we can learn from our past. We can actually build a better future because of what's happened to us in the past. And I think that Joseph brothers are beginning to get this. Joseph basically at the end of all this like shenanigans that goes on between him and his brothers, he winds up the, the youngest brother Benjamin comes and Joseph sees him and sees him with his own eyes. And then he basically frames Benjamin this new youngest brother for stealing his royal chalice. He, he stole the king's Tupperware. All right. And he basically makes it look like Benjamin has done this, plants it in his bag of grain. And then he says, all right, listen, you stole my cup, so there's got to be a punishment. And he basically tells the rest of the brothers, listen, you guys can leave, go back to Canaan, go back to your father, go back to life as usual and life as you've always known it. But Benjamin, because of his crimes, has to stay here in Egypt and be a slave for the rest of his life. So you 10 brothers leave and you leave the youngest brother behind. You go back to your dad and don't ever come back here again. And this guy staying here is going to be a slave for the rest of his life. Basically, what Joseph is doing, we can't miss this, like what he's doing right here in this moment is giving these 10 brothers an opportunity to do the exact same thing to Benjamin that they did to him 22 years ago. Do you see that? Like that, that there, this is an opportunity for them to get rid of the youngest, the new favorite brother. 
Like they had to probably have just as much disdain for Benjamin as they did for Joseph. When dad's got a favorite, that's always gonna be an issue. And he's giving them an opportunity to say, no, you leave him here. He's gonna be a slave in Egypt. They could go back and tell their father it wasn't their fault and you know, it was nothing we could do and they took him from us. He's giving them an opportunity to do the exact same thing that they did 22 years ago. It's a test. But today things are different because Judah, the third brother, summons up the courage to step forward and to step up to this Egyptian official and this powerful man at risk of his own life. And check out, check out what he says in verse 30 of chapter 44 here. He says, he says now, my Lord, I, I, I can't go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in this boy's life. And if he sees the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, we, we will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. So my Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish that this would cause my father. So Judas steps forward and says, no, don't, don't take him, take me instead. And we've got to see the irony here in this moment as well, because, you know, back when the brothers decided to sell Joseph into slavery, guess whose idea it was? Judas. So the same guy who was the architect of this entire scheme, the same guy who came up with the idea and said, hey, why don't we get rid of Joseph and we'll get rid of, he'll be out of our hair. We'll never have to see him again. And then maybe dad will pay attention to us. Maybe dad will love us if we get his favorite out of the picture. But then he had to watch his father grieve for a lifetime, for 22 years, grieve because of the results of the actions that he had taken, because of the result of these schemes that he had dreamed up. And then he watched this other young brother, Benjamin, be born and sort of moved into that new slot, that new favorite spot of dad's, like his whole plan to get dad's attention, to get some of dad's love, to get some of dad's affection didn't work at all. It was all for nothing. All his scheming, all of his dreaming, all of his compromising, like it was like dust in the wind. It didn't work. And now he's faced with this exact same decision, this exact same opportunity that he made 22 years earlier. But today is different. Obviously, at some point, there's been a, a 180 flip in character for Judah. And now he steps forward and says, no, like we're not gonna get, we're not gonna get rid of him. Like we can't do that. We, I can't do that. I can't do that to my father again. I've seen when he's talking about all the anguish that's gonna cause him is because he knows because he saw it when Joseph left. He said, no, we can't, we can't do that to him. I'll do anything. Take, take me instead of him. I'll literally give my life for this kid. I'll offer it to you as a sacrifice right now. And I love, this is, this is a crazy moment, church. All right, I'm just gonna geek out with you for a second. Is that all right? Can I do that? Like as a, as a, as a pastor, like this is a crazy geek out moment because Judah offers his life as a sacrifice for his younger brother, Benjamin. You know, hundreds of years later, Jesus himself in the New Testament would actually be descended from Judah's family. Not from Joseph's, not from the guy who did everything right and was basically perfect and never did anything wrong and like served God so well and had so much favor of God in his life. No, Jesus is actually like the great-great-grandson of of Judah, hundreds of years later, like God chooses to send the Savior, the Messiah, through the line of Judah. Jesus would later be called the Lion of Judah, like the Lion who became the Lamb and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, like simultaneously so all-powerful and so omniscient, and now is offering himself as a sacrifice, as a friend, 
as a loving brother, the exact same way. It's mirrored in what Judah is doing here in this moment. People say Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. No, you're just reading it wrong. He's through there everywhere. And the lion of Judah offered himself as a sacrifice. That's the same way that Judah is offering himself as a sacrifice for his brother. Judah said, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't steal that cup. I'm sin, I am sin free in this moment, in this circumstance. But I want to offer myself as a sacrifice for my brother. Jesus lived a perfect life, did nothing wrong. We're jacked up, we're messed up. And Jesus said, I offer myself for them because, because I love them. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment in scripture. And Joseph is just, when Judah says this, like Joseph is just completely wrecked. He's completely overwhelmed. Like I love this picture that he, he essentially, like all of his manservants, you know, that are in the room and all of his attendants he would have had, he says, out, everybody out. He's like sort of like trying to hold it all in and they all get out. And when that door closes and latches, he just loses it. Like I'm like snotting, ugly crying everywhere, weeping and wailing. Like it's, it's in the Bible, just read it for yourself. Like he just loses it to the point where all of those manservants that are out in the hallways and stuff, they like hear Joseph in there screaming like, like an insane person. And the first thing they do is they run and tell Pharaoh, like, I don't know. I think he's cracked. I think the pressure is getting to him. I don't think he can take this anymore. Like something's going on in there. And he just loses it and just is so overcome with emotion. And he stops speaking through an interpreter. He stops speaking Egyptian. And he starts speaking to them in Hebrew and their tongue. And he says, listen, it's me. I'm your brother. I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you got rid of 22 years ago. I'm the one you sent here as a slave and basically were planning to never, ever see me again. Guess what? God sent me here. God sent me here ahead of you so that I could save your life. God sent me here. Not you did this to me. Not look what you've done to me. No, God sent me here so that I could save your lives and the lives of, of many others. And Joseph wraps his arms around their necks and he weeps and he offers forgiveness. Joseph could have easily easily handcuffed himself to the pain of his past. Joseph could have easily said, you know, I'm going to carry this piano because what's been done to me is wrong and somebody needs to pay for it. But Joseph understood and realized that that was not the way that God intended him to live his life. Joseph understood and realized, no, God sent me here. That what happened to me is something that God wanted to use. He dropped the piano. He broke the chains. He snapped the handcuffs. He threw them away. He said, I'm going to forgive you guys because it's what God has called me to do. It's part of, all part of God's plan. Joseph didn't forgive them because they needed to be forgiven, okay? This is the most important part of forgiveness that we miss sometimes. We feel like the forgiveness is because somebody else needs it. They've done wrong and they need to be forgiven. No, you need to forgive them just so that you can be free, right? You need to forgive them so you're not chained to your past anymore. You need to forgive them so you can drop the piano. What they do with the forgiveness is up to them and that's a good thing. But listen, we can't allow ourselves to be chained to our past. We can't allow ourselves to try and go through life with these pianos on our backs, thinking we can make it, thinking we can do okay and not understanding and realizing how much our capacity really is limited. And when we do that, when we drop the piano, when we snap the handcuffs, when we say, listen, you don't owe me anything anymore, what's been done to us can begin to work for us. You know what I'm saying? And that's what Joseph says. Listen, God sent me here. His brothers did this to him. I'm me. I'm like, look what you guys did to me. How dare you? He says, no, look what God has done. What's been done to us can work for us if we're willing to drop the piano, church, if we're willing to snap the handcuffs. And I think there's a second layer to forgiveness that we sometimes miss when we're thinking about it is that, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me and it's became so apparent that in the, in the very last chapter of Genesis, I told you we're finishing Genesis today, all right? I've made a promise and I'm gonna keep it. Genesis chapter 50, the very last chapter, 
And after all these things have happened and this world's most awkward family reunion transpires and it's just a beautiful picture of kingdom relationships and forgiveness and grace being offered. And then in chapter 50, another 17 years goes by. All right, so 22 years since they've seen each other, there's a family reunion. Another 17 years goes by. And then Genesis chapter 50 tells us that Jacob, the father, passes away. He dies. And in that moment, 17 years later, the first thought and the first response of those 10 brothers is, okay, this is the moment when the, when the hammer falls. This is the moment when Joseph's going to take his revenge. He's been nice to us up to this point just for dad's sake. And he spared our lives for dad's sake. But now that dad's dead, 17 years has gone by. It doesn't matter. This is the moment when he's going to kill us and he's going to take his revenge on us. Look at verse 18. It says of chapter 50, it says, Then his brothers came and they threw themselves down before Joseph. And look, we're your slaves, they said, 17 years later. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? I love this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. And he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. 17 years have passed. And his brothers think, okay, this is it. This is the moment. Like Joseph, he's just, he's just a man. He's going to take it out on us at some point, And this is his opportunity. And Joseph just reassures them and re-extends grace and says, no, like I, I forgave you. I, I dropped the piano. Like I'm not, like that doesn't, that doesn't define me anymore. And you guys need to understand it because here's the thing. Joseph had forgiven. Joseph had dropped the piano. Joseph had snapped the chains that were tying him down to his past, but his brothers hadn't, right? And there's another layer to forgiveness is that sometimes we need to forgive ourselves. That maybe the piano that you're holding on to, maybe the thing you're handcuffed to isn't something that's been done to you, but it's a mistake that you've made. It's maybe something that you've done to somebody else and you've just never been able to accept forgiveness. You can't forgive yourself, but you can accept forgiveness from a God who loves you, from a God who's made it possible. And Joseph says to his brothers, no, you guys aren't getting this. You guys need to drop the piano. You guys need to snap the handcuffs the same way that I did. 17 years has gone by and you guys are still chained to this thing in the past. You're still carrying this around. It's still defining who you are. It's still limiting your capacity and you're never going to be free until you drop the piano. You're never going to be free until you accept the forgiveness that I'm offering. And Joseph said, it's finished. Listen, the Lord is calling some of us in church, some of us online right now to offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt us, but he's calling another group of us to accept forgiveness. We all need to drop a piano, but man, some of us need to drop a piano that, that we put on our backs ourselves. Some of us need to accept the fact that I mean, what God has done was enough, that the forgiveness he offers can cover what we've done. There's some people that think, man, I just, I've done too much. I've gone too far. Like you just don't understand, Andy. You don't understand the extent and the things I've done in my life and where I've gone and what I've been a part of. No, listen, I know a God who's bigger than all of it. I know a God who isn't limited by what we can do. There's nothing we can dream up, no amount of evil in this world that we can dream up as human beings that God can't take and redeem and a tragedy can't move into and say, how can I make something beautiful out of this? David in the Old Testament was a guy that, man, he understood what it was to screw up. He stole people's wives. He murdered their husbands to cover it up. Like he was, he was in the Bible, like he did a lot of great things, but he was a messed up individual. And he wrote a psalm in Psalm 103 that sort of like talks about this, this tension of accepting forgiveness and accepting forgiveness for what you've done. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this, that the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. He's slow to get angry and he's filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He doesn't punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins, get this, as far from us as the east is from the west. That's like ancient old-timey talk for infinity times infinity. Remember we used to say that when we were kids? Infinity times infinity, right? Like that's forever, as far as the east is from the west. Like that's how far God's removed your sin from you. God's not angry with you. God's not up there waiting to punish you. Like 17 years may have gone by and you're just waiting for the hammer to drop. You're just waiting to receive the punishment for what you've done. And so God says, no, 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 that's not the way I operate. I already did that for you. I already took the punishment for you. I took it on myself. I already took the punishment for the person who hurt you. Your job, your responsibility, your opportunity is to drop the piano. Your opportunity is to move forward in the path that I've forged for you in the wilderness. And we're trying to walk and trudge down that path. Like, yeah, I love Jesus. and I'm following Jesus and I'm doing the, I'm doing the right stuff but we're carrying this piano on our back. And Jesus says, no, you need to drop that thing. You need to get rid of it. And you need to run as fast as you can into the destiny that I've placed in front of you. Here's what I know is true, church. And again, like I said, Genesis, we're wrapping this up. And as I read through the book of Genesis, like one thing is incredibly, incredibly clear is that God's plan for your life is unchanging and it's constant. And there may be a lot of twists and turns in the road. There may be some hiccups. There may be some bumps. There may be pain and tragedy and loss, but none of that negates God's plan in your life. If you read through Genesis, it's so obvious, right? Adam and Eve, there's an incredible plan. There's paradise and they mess it up, but God's plan is unchanging. He makes a way. And then there's Noah and God's plan has been messed up, but God makes a way and he makes it possible. His plan never changes. It never alters course. The, the, the people mess it up and they take a, a few wrong turns along the way, but God's plan never changes. With Abraham, messes up. God's plan never changes. With Isaac and with Jacob and with Joseph and his brothers, like God's plan was constant through the entire thing. That all throughout Genesis, God's plan for humanity, God's plan for this world was grace upon grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy upon mercy. That for every one of us, he offers us that freedom. We don't have to be chained and handcuffed to our past anymore. He wants us to run in the path that he set in front of us. There's a there's a little, a little book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. You've probably never heard of it. It's kind of indie. It's like not that big of a deal. But Chronicles of Narnia were written by C.S. Lewis. And in, in those books, there's a, there's a character named Aslan, and he's a lion. And in those books, Aslan represents, represents God. His character represents God. And, you know, there's, there's great stories and there's great journeys that, that Aslan goes on in those, in those stories with the, with the characters. And at the end of that series, there's this beautiful moment that, that, I, love, that I love so much. And that as, as the journey is coming to a close, and man, these guys have been on this journey with Aslan and he's led them, he sacrificed himself for them. And there's been lots of bumps and turns. There's been, there's been twists, there's been loss, there's been failure, there's been betrayal, but Aslan's been there through all of it. And then at the end, 
of this series. At the end of this book, there's this moment where they sort of come into this clearing <clears throat> and they're in this field and, and they, can, they, can see, they can see paradise in front of them. And they can see it and they can see that the journey is, is getting close and it's, it's coming to an end. And it's so, it's so beautiful because Aslan's there and he's speaking to them in this moment and his followers and he, he gives them this little motivational speech and then he turns and he just starts to run and he runs up the mountain and he runs through the trees and through the forest and he's calling back to his followers. He's saying further up and further in, further up and further in. And that's what he's calling them to on their journey. And I think the Lion of Judah today calls his church to do exactly that. Go further up and further in. Let the path that he's placed in front of us, he says, no, 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 take the handcuffs off. Just drop, drop the piano. Whether it's something that's been done to you or something that you've done to somebody else, drop the piano further up and further in. There's so much beauty that God has placed in front of us. His plan doesn't change. His plan doesn't alter because of things that we've done. What the enemy intended to harm you, God intended for good. And when we put that in perspective, when we put in perspective like the guilt that we might carry around, okay, like it's obvious that the enemy intended this for harm, but God intends it for good. Joseph realized that. Joseph recognized that. Listen, you guys wanted to kill me, but God wanted to use it for something beautiful and something amazing. It's literally the opposite. Like they intended death and what God, what God brought out of it was the saving of thousands and thousands of lives. Do you see that? Like what a beautiful picture that is. Like that's us. Like what should be death and what could be death and what could like be the red ink on our death certificate is actually life that God calls every one of us into further up and further in. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to us. It doesn't matter what's in our past. Drop the piano and run with me, church. That's what he's saying. Further up and further in, further up and further in. That's our decision. It's our choice. What the enemy wanted to use to harm you, God intended for good. You get to choose how that plays out in your life. Pray with me, church. God, man, we are so, we are so grateful, Father, for, for who you are and what you do in us and what you've done for us, God. And God, forgive us for the moments when we're, when we're chained to our past, God, when we limit our capacity, God, when we, when we don't appreciate and take advantage of the forgiveness that you offer us, God, when there not be a soul in this place, may there not be a heart in this place or listening online right now, Jesus, that doesn't understand the forgiveness that is available through you, God, that doesn't understand your good gift of grace. God, when I think about what you've done for me and when I think about what the cross represented, and I think about what that cost you, God. May I never, may I never belittle that, Jesus, by, by not understanding its power in my life. God, may I never belittle what you've done for me by handcuffing myself to my past. God, by limiting my capacity because of something that's happened. God, may we all walk in your freedom. God, there's not a single person in this room that shouldn't say right now, God, like, I can walk in your freedom. I can drop the piano, I can snap the handcuffs, I can snap the chains. Like that doesn't have to be me any longer, Jesus. And I want your freedom. I want the freedom that you offer. I wanna go further up and further in. God, I want to know you more. Jesus, I wanna run on the path you sent for me. I don't wanna limp, I don't wanna struggle, God, I wanna run. I wanna sprint. 
So God, would you set us free today in the name of Jesus? Father, you've already done the work. It's already completed on the cross in Christ Jesus. God, the temple veil has been torn. God, the curtain has fallen. There's nothing between us and you anymore, God, other than just recognizing and accepting what you've done for us. Father, so in the name of Jesus, today, will we drop our pianos? God, will we get rid of the grudges? Will we snap the handcuffs? Father, will we run to you? Father, will we run from the path the Lion of Judah has forged for us? Further up and further in. God, we love you. We're with you. We're for you, Jesus. And we're grateful and we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.